We're going to continue in our series on Sunday nights, Defending Your Faith, and I want you to go along with a journey with me on the subject of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is part four in our series, and I want us to develop uh, this time and next time the doctrine of the Trinity. This is an excellent opportunity for you and for me as we do all that we can to understand our faith, especially as those who attack our belief in the Trinity, whether they be inside or outside the church. And it is so very, very important that we understand what we believe regarding the Godhead, the doctrine of the Trinity. In probably no other area of Christian theology has more confusion, debate, and even scorn come from those who deny the biblical teaching on the Trinity. As you know, the Trinity has been a battleground for many who have tried to either understand it, one, or from those who have actually denied it. For instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, and we've talked a little bit about that this weekend because of their influence, as Paul mentioned, from Japan. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the Trinity is actually an apostate doctrine inspired by the devil and has come to us from the influence of paganism upon Christianity. That's what they believe. And I must say at the outset of our discussion regarding the Trinity that it must be readily acknowledged up front that any attempt on the part of a Christian to fully and completely understand the Trinity will be, I'm sure, as you've experienced it, very frustrating. To attempt to try to understand all of the mysteries of the Godhead is very, very frustrating. And yet, at the same time, any denial of the basic understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity is spiritually fatal. Millard Erickson, one of the contemporary Christian theologians in our day, has written this. He said, This doctrine of the Trinity in many ways presents strange paradoxes. It is very widely held. It is not simply the special view of a particular denomination or sect. It is part of the faith of the universal church. Yet, it is a widely disputed doctrine which has provoked discussion throughout all the centuries of the church's existence. It is held by many with great vehemence and vigor. These advocates are certain they believe the doctrine and consider it crucial to the Christian faith. Yet many are unsure of the exact meaning of their belief. It was the very first doctrine dealt with systematically by the church, yet it is still one of the most misunderstood and disputed doctrines. Further, It is not clearly or explicitly taught anywhere in Scripture, yet it is widely regarded as a central doctrine, indispensable to the Christian faith. In this regard, it goes contrary to what is virtually an axiom of biblical doctrine, namely that there is a direct correlation between the scriptural clarity of a doctrine and its cruciality to the faith and life of the church." In other words, what Millard Erickson is saying is while it may be implicit and while you need to do a lot of formulating from a number of different passages, 
Uh, it is not so explicitly clear so as to be understood by all. And yet, at the same time, it is one of the most central doctrines in all of Christianity. And so if you have something like that, a, an apparent paradox, something that is very hard to understand, and yet something that is absolutely vital for Christians to believe, it's something that we must study. I would even go further than Miller Erickson with this kind of understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And while it may not be explicitly spelled out in Scripture, it is nevertheless one of the central and cardinal doctrines that all of us must understand, at least to some degree, if we want to define ourselves as true Christians. As has been well said, the man who tries to define the Trinity will lose his mind, but the man who denies the Trinity will lose his soul. And it is absolutely important for us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. If we're ever going to defend our faith, especially if you were to go to a foreign place and you were to try to communicate to someone about this matter of the Trinity and they were to scorn or laugh at you or they might be eager to hear from you exactly how to defend such a doctrine, what would you say? How would you respond? In what ways would you try to define and also defend your faith? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to define the Trinity biblically. Now, we're going to take all of this evening to do a biblical data gathering and then next time we'll do a theological understanding of the Trinity. Now, we have to take two messages because it is such a vast topic and yet at the same time we want to focus in tonight on the biblical statements regarding the Trinity. Now, what are the issues that Scripture brings to bear on the subject? And I want you to know that if we are to defend our faith accurately and readily, we must first of all, with regard to this truth, believe and teach that God the Father is God, that Jesus Christ is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. But, having said that, we must state also right off the bat that we're not saying by this that there are three gods. And this is often where Christians run afoul of their own system of belief, where they don't teach people accurately in defending their faith. Because often, if you were to say to someone that God the Father, according to the Bible, is God, that Jesus Christ Himself also is God, and that the Holy Spirit Himself also is God, then someone might surmise immediately, and so many have, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, well then, Christianity to you then means three gods. And we must first and foremost say, no, we are not teaching in Christianity that we worship three gods. We only worship one God. And I think it's very helpful for us to understand exactly what we mean when we say that there are three persons in the Godhead and yet one God. That seems so incredibly difficult to understand. How can three be one? Well, Hank Hanegraaff, who is the president of the Christian Research Institute, CRI, has been very helpful in this matter. He uh, often talks when he talks to people about the Trinity, and he says, you have to understand that what we're talking about is one what and three who's. We're talking about one what, that is God. That is a divine essence, a divine being. 
But within that divine being, we are talking about three who's. That is, obviously, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what one uh, that we worship and serve is God, and only God, and that there is only one God, but that that God is made up of three distinct persons, one divine essence, but three distinct persons or beings. So the three who's are the three members of the Trinity. Now, we also have to say right off the bat here that and there are a lot of people who are very uncomfortable when you use the word Trinity. In fact, I'm not always comfortable with the word Trinity because the word itself sometimes implies, as you might imagine, uh, in our theology that someone assumes we're saying three gods because the idea of the Trinity implies three. And often I will try to uh, encourage myself to use language that the Bible uses, like the term Godhead. But that term itself needs definition. And so whichever term you use, we want to be very, very clear in what we mean. Uh, The word Trinity has often been maligned, especially by Jehovah's Witnesses, because, for instance, they'll say, well, the word Trinity is never used in the Bible. And so how can you believe in a doctrine for which its namesake is never mentioned in the Bible? And, of course, the easy answer to that is, That's simple. The word Bible is never used in the Bible. And so even by your own admission, there are words and theological concepts that are used and spoken of that are never explicitly given to us as a word in the New Testament or the Bible as a whole. And so we don't really have a problem with that. The word Trinity is just a word that someone began to use to describe this matter of three persons and yet one divine being or essence. And so, let me start off by giving you a general definition of the Trinity. And I want you to write this down because this will be very, very important as we move along in our discussion of the Trinity. Here's a general definition. Within the one being that is God, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally... Three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll give that to you again so you can make sure you write that down. Within the one being, that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do tonight in our remaining time is we're going to talk about those three persons from a biblical viewpoint, and we're going to prove that all three persons are said in the Bible to be God, to be of one divine essence. And this, I think, will be a fascinating study. If you've never read much on the subject, or if you've never had to defend your faith with regard to what you believe, I want to arm you. I want to give you these passages so that you can memorize all of them, and then you can use them, not only for your own spiritual life and sanctification, but for any one moment when you're called upon to defend your faith. All right, number one, God the Father is God. 
Now that seems a little bit strange, but we at least have to say it that way. God the Father is God. In other words, the Bible teaches explicitly that there is a being called God and describes to this God divine qualities as to his essence. And normally, when the Bible uses that term God, it is normally referring to the Father or the first member or first person of the Godhead. And for us to delve into this biblical information, I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that will be the first passage. Now we're going to look at a lot of passages tonight. And so I don't want you to be overly frustrated. You just keep that pen going and write all these passages down. Or you can, of course, memorize them as I give them to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Very, very familiar passage. It's called by the Hebrews themselves the Shema, the great statement about the uniqueness and the singularity of the God of Israel. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And every faithful Jew from that passage affirms a monotheistic religion. That means that there is a belief in only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And this, as I said, is normally ascribed as we flow through the Bible and begin to see that there are others who are called God, that this is a normal reference to God the Father. Now, there is a number of passages in Isaiah that I want you to look to. Isaiah chapter 43 ascribes the godhood of God. It speaks of a divine essence, a divine being, and refers to God the Father. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. Isaiah 43:10 says, "You are my witnesses," declares the Lord, "and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me." A very exclusive statement. There is only one God, and it is me, and there is no other, and there will be no other God after me. And then uh, one chapter later in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. Uh, From the time that I established the ancient nation... And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. This is an affirmation that God the Father is God. And then one chapter later, Isaiah 45, verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? 
and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. And then chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 43, 44, 45, and 46, and also Jeremiah chapter 10 speaks of this one God who is like no other. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. Jeremiah says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In other words, there really aren't any other gods. All of those supposed deities, all of these millions and millions of gods in Hinduism or Buddhism, they're but dust. They're nothing. They're wooden and carved images that sit on someone's mantle. They aren't real. I'm the only God. I'm the only one who created the heavens and the earth. And so that's an Old Testament listing of just a very few passages that affirm that God the Father is God. You say, well, those passages, they never really said the Father, did they? They only talked about God. Well, remember, in the Old Testament, there really wasn't much of a doctrine at all of the Trinity. In fact, really no explicit passages at all. It's really a reference to God the Father as God. It's a later and more developed doctrine as you move into the New Testament. And so that's where we're going to go. I want you to look in your Bibles at John chapter 17. Because here in the New Testament is when we begin in earnest. Not as though the Old Testament didn't portray God as Father. He certainly did as the Father of Israel. But... In the New Testament, you see the expression as it relates to the Trinity themselves. John chapter 17. It speaks in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him He may give You eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God. You see, when you look up all of those passages in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in the passage there in Deuteronomy, when it speaks of this one true God, here that one true God is defined. He is defined as God the Father. You are the one true God. You are the one who has glorified your Son. You are the one who's given Him authority over all flesh. You are the one who dispenses eternal life. You're that God. It is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of this as well. It says, For they themselves report about us, Paul says, what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God 
and to wait for His Son from heaven. See, that's a clear reference to God the Father. Because in the next verse, it refers to the Son. And so it's referring there to the first person of the Trinity. And it says He's the one true God. This is an explicit reference to God the Father being Himself God. Indeed, in 1 John 5.20, it speaks of the same thing. This is a wonderful passage because I believe it speaks both of the deity of the Father and the Son in one passage. 1 John 5.20. It's not always a passage that's thought about because it's right there at the end of 1 John. Only one verse before you end the epistle. And it says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father is the true God. In Him we have truth. And we also have truth in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then it, of course, says, this is the true God and eternal life. Now that may be a reference back to the Father being the true God, but because it's already referred to the Father as the true God, the one in whom we live and have truth, the one who is true, and then it says His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God, the nearest antecedent there, the nearest subject to which this might be referring to, I believe, is Jesus Christ. And so here in one verse... We have the deity of the Father and the deity of the Son given to us, I think, very, very clearly. So, we have a number of passages which speak about God as both Father and as the true God. There is no other. Now, there are other references as well that explicitly say that God is Father. John 20, verse 17, says it very, very well. A wonderful passage that you might memorize because it can give you confidence as you affirm the deity of God the Father. In John 20, verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. That's Mary. She was trying to hold on to Christ. And he said, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. You see it there? That's a very, very explicit reference to the deity of the Father. You and I will ascend to my Father and my God and your God. Jesus made it clear that the Father was his God. You say, now wait a minute. If Jesus made it clear that it was not only their God, but His God, what about those claims of the Jehovah's Witness who would say, see, now there's a passage that clearly says that Jesus is referring to His God. How can He be God at the same time when He's referring to His God? If you Christians only believe in one God, if you're true monotheists, then how can Jesus be referring to to his God. Well, it's very interesting. In John 20:17, Jesus did state, "I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God." Now, why did Jesus not simply say, "I am ascending to our Father and our God?" Well, the reason why is because Christ had a unique 
relationship with God. He had a unique relationship because he had come from God. He was a son by nature. We are sons of God by adoption. And what is really going on there, if you notice that passage, is that Jesus doesn't say, our God. He really talks about the fact that it's your God and it's our God, but in a very, very different sense. He was careful, very careful, to distinguish the two relationships. And so we don't have any problem with Jesus referring to the Father as our God in the sense that He had a heavenly Father in His humanity by His very nature. There's no problem there. You often will hear Jehovah's Witnesses talk about the fact, how could Christ be praying in the garden to God when you claim that He Himself is God? Very easy. He's praying to His heavenly Father because the heavenly Father is God. But Christ, being the God-man, has no problem in His humanity praying to God the Father. In His humanity, He was a prayer warrior, just like we, by adoption as sons, are to be prayer warriors. There's no problem with that at all. Christ, in His humanity, was tired. He was hungry. There were opportunities for Him to sleep and to eat as God the Father would never be. And the answer, of course, is because His humanity. The issue with Jehovah's Witnesses really to deny all of these texts that refer to Christ both as God and as one who prayed to God. It's not that difficult to understand if you understand that Christ is the Son of God, the one who was incarnated by a human flesh. In fact, the God the Father phrases only enhance the issue of Christ's relationship to the Father as God's Son. It only enhances that because you can see that all of this relationship between the Son and the Father was unique while Jesus was on earth. When Jesus was ascended back to the Father and regained the glory, while He still refers to God as His Father, they now even share a different and more unique relationship after the God-man experience. There's really no problem there. I've had dialogue with a number of Jehovah's Witnesses who have come to the door And I've showed them all of these passages that refer to God the Father as God and refer to Christ as God. And as they've asked me those questions, I've turned around and asked them questions about His humanity. And if He were only a man or if He were some sort of lesser God or lesser deity, which is a problem in their system, how could Christ do the things He did as a divine being? How could He perform miracles? How could He raise people from the dead? How could He do those things unless He was a divine person? And they would often respond by saying, well, because He is that lesser God. Because He is God, but He's a God and less than the Jehovah God. And so I've said to them, aha, so you admit then that you are polytheists you then believe that there are more than one God. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not polytheists. We are monotheists. We only believe in one God. In fact, we only believe that there is a Jehovah God. There's only one. And so then I say, well, then you believe then that Jesus was not God at all. No, no. We, we affirm that John 1.1 says, in the beginning was, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. 
So then you believe that there are two gods. No. You see, it's not a problem at all to tear apart that system because it is clearly incongruent with itself. But it's not a problem at all to have a divine being take on flesh and yet not have a diminished deity in any sense. The issue with Christ and His humanness was that He voluntarily did not choose to use His divine attributes at certain periods of time. That's what Philippians 2 is talking about. When He was tired or when He was hungry, it was simply a matter of His choice not to use those things. Do you remember when Christ said, I could call right now a legion of what? Angels. He had the choice to do that, but He chose not to do that because it wasn't the Father's plan. At any one point, Jesus could have said, all right, men, that's enough. I'm taking over. Enough of that. I'm going to send a legion of angels and all of you will be smashed to smithereens for your sin and disobedience to me as God. But that wasn't a part of the Father's plan. The part of the Father's plan included all of the suffering of the suffering servant. He went all the way to the cross, never choosing to go outside of the confines that the Father had given him. That's why he kept saying, I'm only here to do his will. I'm only here to do his will. There's no issue there. The, the Father is God. The Son is God. And the Father is God in so many other passages. Let me just list them to you so that you can write them down. 1 Corinthians 8.6. 1 Corinthians 8.6 refers to God the Father as God. 1 Corinthians 11.3 1 Corinthians 11, 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. All of those passages speak of God the Father as being God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Romans 15.6, Romans 15.6, 1 Timothy 5.21, 1 Timothy 5.21, and Revelation 1.6. All of those passages refer to God the Father as God. It is an unmistakable and clear teaching in the Bible. And not only is God the Father said to be God... But secondly, God the Son, or Jesus Christ, is God. The Bible teaches that Jesus Himself is divine. And that the divine qualities of the person of God are to be ascribed to Him. And I've just mentioned John 1.1. Now that's a passage that's so very easy to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. John 1.1, as I quoted it a moment ago, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or, as it is literally word for word translated in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That's the way the Greek text reads. And so, it is not any kind of problem to affirm the deity of Christ, even if John 1.1 was all you had. And you know, of course, that in verse 3 of John 1, it talks about Christ being the Creator. Everything exists and has been created through Him. 
And then in verse 14, And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, it says that the Father has begotten the Son. And it says, If you want to know who God the Father is, look at Christ, because He has explained Him. Or He has exegeted Him. He has interpreted who God the Father is. And that's why when the disciples waned and uh, didn't always see Christ for who He was, they were saying to Him, Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one? And He would say, for instance, to Philip, Philip, how long do I need to be with you? For you not to assume, not to know, not to affirm who I am. Uh, the JWs and others who try to monkey around with John 1.1, as I said, have a very difficult problem. Because, again, if you're going to insist that you're a monotheist, then John 1.1 gives you great difficulty. You can't affirm anything else but the deity of Christ there unless you also affirm that there are numbers of gods and two of them are listed there. John 20.28. You remember that passage? That's where Thomas was asked by Christ to reach his hand into Christ's side and look at the scars. And when Thomas did so and he knew that Christ had been resurrected from the dead, what did he say? He said, my Lord and my what? My God. I was reading this week in preparation for our time tonight and I was reading some JW literature and they said, well... What that really means is uh, that would be like what we say today when someone is startled or surprised at something and they say, Oh my Lord! Or Oh my God! And I thought to myself, that is the worst argument possible. (laughs) Why? Well, for one thing, you don't take a contemporary phrase and try to jam it back into their culture. They would never use a phrase like that. That would be near blasphemy to them. No Jew would say, oh my God, like that. In fact, we shouldn't say that today either, should we? That's not what Thomas meant. Thomas meant exactly what he said. Give him credit. He wasn't doubting Thomas anymore. John 20, 28 is a great passage on the deity of Christ. How about John 8, 58? You remember that? John 8, 58, Jesus affirms His deity when He says... Before Abraham was, I am. Ego, me. That's a, that's a very, very specific reference, I believe, right back to Exodus 3.14, where it's said of God, Ego, me. That's God saying, I am. I am the self-existent one. I am He. I'm the self-sustaining one. If you want to call me by my personal name, He says... I am that I am. And when Jesus said to those shocked Jews of His day, before Abraham was, I am. A very, very explicit reference to His deity. And if they weren't shocked enough, He said a little while later in John 10.30, it's a a lot of time in between, but only two chapters if you read it. John 10.30, I and the Father are what? One. And of course, there are those who say, yes, well, of course, that means one in agreement. One in unity. No, it doesn't. 
That means one in essence. That's the clear understanding of that passage, and it's the clear understanding of that word in that passage. And if you want other passages that clearly affirm the doctrine of the Trinity by looking at Christ as God, Romans 9.5 is one of the greatest New Testament texts to affirm the deity of Christ. Romans 9.5. It says, From whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. That is a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. It calls Him God. And it's not simply referring to Christ as being God-blessed. It means that God, Christ, the person of Christ as God, will bless forever. It's a very clear reference to the deity of Christ. I gave you that reference a moment ago of Philippians 2.6, where it says, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. In other words... Before the world began, the first two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, had a face-to-face relationship. That's what John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. Before time began, the Word was with God. Pros, ton, theon. The the Word was face-to-face. That talks about intimacy. It talks about equality of relationship. They had uh, two glorious essences the two persons of the one divine essence, and they were God. And yet Christ did not regard that kind of equality, that kind of face-to-face relationship. He didn't regard that as something to grasp, something to hold on to, but it says He emptied Himself and He became a servant. That's a very clear reference in Paul's writings, Philippians 2.6, to the deity of Christ. 1 John 5.20 I gave you. Colossians 1, we've studied that before. Colossians 1.15 and Colossians 2.9. It says, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. Colossians 2.9. That seems pretty clear, doesn't it? All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. If that weren't enough, Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13 speaks about the deity of Christ. It speaks this way, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, there are some who debate this and they assume that it's speaking more as a reference to God the Father, our great God and Savior, a reference to the Father, and then Jesus Christ, and that could be true. But there are good reasons, linguistic and exegetical, to assume that that is actually a reference to Christ Himself, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. But one of my favorites, and I remember talking about this with a loved one of mine who was a Jehovah's Witness, and I remember camping out on this text, Hebrews chapter 1. This to me is one of the most Beautiful attestations to the deity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. Of course, this is in the context of talking about Christ who has been appointed as heir of all things, the one through whom the world was made. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Verse 3 is the exact representation of God's nature and bodily form. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He's made purification of sins. He sat down... 
on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's greater than any angel. I mean, if that weren't enough, that's a wonderful affirmation of the deity of Christ in those earlier verses. But look down at verse 7. Now, the end of verse 6 says, Let all the angels of God worship Him. If He's not God, then He's not worthy of worship. But since He is God, He is worthy of worship. And of the angels, He says, that is God, God the Father, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Thy throne, what? O God, is forever and ever. And I remember saying over and over and over again to that loved one, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thank you, Jesus Christ. And I believe that that may have very well been one of the things that God used as a passage of Scripture to bring her to Christ. That's just a tremendous passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind, as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Kyrios, the word for Lord, is used thousands of times in the Bible, mostly about God the Father, but many times about Christ. Christ is the Lord. God the Father is the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord and Savior. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord, Lord. He is Lord. He's King. He's the glorious one. You say, well, you've left one out. And that's true. I, I saved it for the end. Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6. What does it call Christ there? The mighty God. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Did you know that just one chapter later, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, it calls the Father the mighty God? That is a tremendous linkage with referring to Christ as the mighty God. Christ is the mighty God, Isaiah 9, 6. God the Father is the mighty God. They, in their two persons, are Jehovah. Along with, and finally, number three, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. He is God as well. Not three gods, one God, three distinct persons. And the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is not to be ignored. He is God as well. Not an impersonal force as so many people say, but He is a person with a divine essence. You say, well, if much of the emphasis in our Bibles is on God the Father as God and on Christ as God, uh, is there a few references? Are there only a few references about the Holy Spirit? Well, there are fewer than God the Father and God the Son, but of the Holy Spirit, He's mentioned right there in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. You see the eternality of the Spirit there? He is God. 
The Holy Spirit is a person. And one of the things that we have to be careful with as Christians is that we don't fall into the trap of referring to the Holy Spirit as an it. All of us, I'm sure, have probably made that kind of mistake. I've caught myself before referring to the persons of the Godhead sometimes as it. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit, of course, is a spirit, sometimes manifested, for instance, as a dove at the baptism of Christ, not ever manifested as a person or a man, but manifested as the Holy Spirit. And He is God. And probably the clearest reference as we close our time tonight is in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. This would be the passage that I think you should go to to affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit and to affirm, therefore, by affirming His deity, the Trinity. Acts chapter 5. This is that reference to the account of the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property. They kept back some of the price for uh, himself and then ultimately for her as well with her full knowledge. So they brought a portion, but only a portion, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In other words, if the Holy Spirit wasn't a person, then whom is Ananias lying to? You don't lie to an it. You don't lie to an impersonal force. You don't lie to anyone except a person. And it says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept back some of the price of the land. He says in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to whom? God. See that? The Holy Spirit is God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. In fact, what you've done, Ananias, is you've lied to God Himself. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, says that people are to be baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. If the Father is a person, if the Son is a person, and if they have names, the Holy Spirit is a person, He has a name, and His name is Holy Spirit. In fact, I did a little checking on that, and that word for name is used 228 times in the New Testament. Four times, only four times, it's used of a place that has a name for that place, someone's name. Excluding those four cities that have a name for the city, every other reference when it speaks about a name is speaking about a person. Never is the name, when it's used, ever referring to an impersonal force, an it, an entity, something other than a person. The Holy Spirit has a name, and because of that, He is a person. How about all those references in John chapters 14 through 16 where Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper and when He comes, He will be your parakletas. He will be your helper. He will be the one who's called alongside you. And all of those references to that uh, personal pronoun, He, He, He. You've not lied to men, Ananias, but you've lied to God. He is God and you've lied to Him. He has a name. And we're to be baptized in His name. 
you remember when the reference I quoted this morning in Mark 3.22 when the Pharisees said that Jesus was casting out devils by the prince of devils and Jesus went on to describe the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You can't make any sense of that text unless you understand that they were blaspheming a person. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit as a person. In Ephesians 5.18, when it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be controlled by the what? The Spirit. It would make no sense to say, Don't be controlled by wine, which is an it, but be controlled by it, the Spirit. What would be the it? What would be that? Would it be some sort of animistic uh, sort of spirit that's at work in the world? No. No, it's a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't make any sense if uh, Paul were to say in Galatians 5, but I say walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit's rule. Walk by His guidelines. And what are His guidelines? The Word of God. He authored the Word of God. Uh, It would make no sense to say that you should be always and forever exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit if the Holy Spirit wasn't a person. It would be, again, some sort of impersonal idea of love and joy and peace and so forth if it weren't referring to a person. Maybe just a couple of others and we'll close. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And I think this is often missed, but this is clear. First Timothy 4, 1. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, clearly in the context... The Holy Spirit explicitly, what? Says. The Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit has a a voice. And He speaks. And what He speaks is this. In the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. The Holy Spirit is a person. And He speaks. And this is what He says. He's prophesying. He's saying, this is what I I'm telling you is going to happen in the latter days. And then, of course, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is whom? He who is in you than he who is in the world. That's a reference to the Spirit. In fact, it says, test the spirits. Watch out. There are other spirits who are in the world. Uh, those spirits are persons, right? Evil spirits. Evil entities. So we wouldn't know at all what the reference would be to if it were evil spirit its. It wouldn't make any sense. The Holy Spirit is a person, and greater is He, the Holy Spirit that's in you, than He, that evil spirit who's in the world. Well, that's a lot of verses, and that's a lot of defense of the Trinity. But I hope I've given you at least some of these references that give you an idea of the massive amount of data. Now, I said to you at the beginning, didn't I? I quoted from Millard Erickson that says it's not clearly or explicitly taught in the Bible. Well, there's no one passage that is the subject matter of the deity of the Trinity. That's true. But with all of this mountain of biblical data, does anyone doubt that the Holy Spirit is God, that Jesus Christ is God, that God the Father is God? There's no doubt about that. That's why it's so important for us to say that is a cardinal doctrine of our faith. So much so that if you deny the Trinity, you can't be saved. You say, well, can I be saved and not understand the implications of the Trinity? Yes, I am one. I mean, there's a sense in which this is a... 
This is a mystery. Of course it is. How could we delve into the matters of the persons of the Godhead and understand it as we might otherwise desire? We can't understand those things to their fullness, but we do have to understand it to some degree. In fact, we have to understand it enough to say, I believe it. I believe it. I believe the Bible teaches it, and my faith rests on the fact that God the Father is the creator of the world, that Jesus Christ is the creator of the world, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters as the creator of the world, that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of the Bible, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the God-man who comes to bring salvation to the world, that God the Father had a plan that was initiated, and Christ himself was the implementer of that plan, and the Holy Spirit was the applier to that plan. And that's a mouthful. All to say that we love the Trinity. Does that sound strange? I love the Trinity. That's not sort of our normal Christian language, but it should be. I love the Trinity. We have songs that we sing that sort of uh, parcel out the members of the Godhead and we sort of uh, sing about them and worship them individually, but we ought to bring it back to a focus that says, I love the Trinity. I love the group. I love the persons. We say, I love God. We ought to remind ourselves when we say that, I love God, that means I love the three persons of the Godhead. I want you to bow your heads with me tonight, and as you do, I want you to ask yourself whether or not you've really ever thought through how to defend your faith in the matter of the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you love the Trinity? Are you thankful for the Trinity? Oh, we often say we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for His death on the cross. We'll often say as well that we're thankful to God, the Father. (coughs) But are we thankful for the work of the entire Godhead? How the Father initiated the plan. How the Son implemented the plan. And how the Holy Spirit applied the plan of redemption. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love You and we extol You. And we thank You that You were the initiator of our salvation from eternity past. And that this second person of the Godhead, the the Son, God the Son, was the one who left the glories of that face-to-face relationship with you. And He came to serve us. What a thought. And that He has now sat down at the right hand of your majesty, having completed the work of redemption for for us. But even there, if Christ had not ascended to You, Father, the Holy Spirit would not have come and we would still be in our sins because it is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who grants us new life, who creates in us a new heart. And He's the one who applies that redemption to our souls. And He's the one who energizes us for service, empowers us for prayer. 
Oh Lord, we could just spend all night praying to the Trinity. And we do so by the energizing work of the Spirit through the obedience and work of the Son. The glory that can only be ascribed to You, Father. Oh, how we love the Trinity. And may we in our best days work diligently to know these passages of Scripture. To be able to help fellow believers who might struggle with such things, especially new believers, to to help them become grounded in the faith. To give them a level of confidence that they don't need to be intimidated by the cults and isms of the world. To be able, as Paul and Violet, to go to a place like Japan and, and be armed with a level of confidence that any conversation they might go into, they could biblically and readily defend the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And know that with that confidence and with that knowledge, you would use that as an instrument to bring your word to bear on people's hearts and that they would be granted eternal life. What a joy. What a joy to know that we can confidently and intelligently defend our faith. May we take these passages of Scripture and study them and memorize them so that at any one point, even without our Bibles, we could defend the Trinity. Lord, we know that we can't understand it all. But the part that we readily do understand, we ascribe to you glory and honor because we believe it with all our hearts. Thank you for giving us the Trinity. We love you. Amen.